I had a great teacher at McGill University where I went named Albert Bregman, great cognitive psychologist. And I was struggling, as you can only do when you're 21 years old and you have to choose your major. And it seems like the most important thing in the world. And I was struggling between psychology and art history. And he said, very calmly, he said, you know what? He said, is this a difficult decision for you? And I said, yeah, really difficult. He said, then it's not important. He said, all difficult decisions are unimportant because if they're difficult, it means that there's a lot to be said on both sides. There's something rewarding about both and it doesn't matter which one you choose. Each one will be rewarding in a different way. He said, if you were struggling between art history and dentistry, he said, that wouldn't be a difficult decision for you. You'd know which one you'd want to do. And I always thought that was very profound advice because what he was saying was not only that psychology was interesting and art history is interesting, which is true, but also that you would learn how to learn by pursuing either one. Welcome to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast, brought to you by Unincorporated, a higher education agency committed to building awareness and growing enrollment for universities. This podcast provides deans, senior admin, and faculty with the tools, resources, and information they need to grow student interest, design branded content, and launch new programs and courses. Hey everyone, this is Ian Evenstar from Unincorporated, your host of the Higher Ed Happy Hour. Today I'm here with Adam Gopnik. And for decades, Adam's been one of America's most beloved writers. He's best known as a staff writer for The New Yorker and as an author of nearly a dozen books, including his latest, The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. So in this book, uh, Adam actually apprentices himself to an artist, a dancer, a boxer, and even a driving instructor. And he learns that mastering a skill is actually a process of methodically breaking down and building up piece by piece. And that true mastery actually in any field requires mastering other people's minds. That sounds very intriguing. So we're here today to discuss the pursuit of mastery and the learning process. And of course, that's very relevant for higher education, both from the student perspective, as well as for faculty and admin. Adam, it's a pleasure to have you on. Welcome to the show. It's a delight to be with you, Ian. I particularly envy your beautiful last name, which is, I'm sure a million people tell you, is the last name shared with the heroine of Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, Arwen Evenstar, one of the sexiest women in, <laughs> in, in the Elfin Kingdom. Yes, yes. You know, you know the reference well. It's, uh, it's Elvish by, by its history. And my parents, they every summer would read the trilogy together. And so they were inspired by that. You're kidding, really? Yeah, that's fantastic. So your book, uh, The Real Work, this actually contains a set of stories of the efforts you know, that you undertake in terms of learning new skills and how you develop a set of ideas about learning. So tell us just you know, here at the forefront, what inspired you to write a book of this nature? Well, first of all, it you know, just to be clear, it wasn't a kind of high concept book where I thought, I'll go apprentice myself to a lot of distinguished masters. And, you know, I pitched it to the publisher. What if I did this? These were all things that happened quite organically in the course of, I suppose, about 15 years. So at no point was I saying, now what's next? What, what's the next check mark? I got fascinated just by chance, as I described in the book, with um, the art of drawing, because I happened to sit next to a, a great and, and reactionary drawing master at a dinner party once. And impulsively, like so many of the best things in life, uh, I said to him, would you teach me to draw? And it was a kind of compensatory activity because I'd spent 40 years of my life almost as an art critic 
and couldn't couldn't draw a thing. Then I had to learn to drive because um, I wanted to relieve my wife in summertime when we go off to the ocean. And she was the one who had to be rousted out of bed to go get cinnamon buns for the kids. I could go on my bike, but it took an hour and a half for me to get the cinnamon buns and bring them back. And so I had to learn to drive. And my son, who was just turning 20, wanted to learn to drive. And I thought this was the time to do it. And I was in my mid-50s before I learned to drive. So all of these things happened quite organically. I wanted to learn to box, to get in better shape, and so on. But I realized as they, as I was writing these things, and in the nature of my work, turning them into comic essays for The New Yorker, where I've been for so long, um, I realized that they had a common shape and a common purpose and even a common point. And that was exactly as you, as you said, first that there's a, a beautiful commonality about instruction and about learning. We learn pretty much everything by breaking it down into its smallest and usually very awkward counterintuitive parts, if you like, and then slowly and painfully, but through passionate perseverance, uh, bringing them together until they form what seems to us a seamless whole. And that's true about drawing and it's true about boxing. When you're learning to draw, you're not told by your uh, drawing master, in my case, a wonderful representational artist named Jacob Collins, you're not told, look at the world, look at Ian and draw what you see um, without prejudice when you see Ian. It's an undoable task. It's an inexplicable instruction. Instead, you're taught a series of little sub-schemas and routines. You look at Ian and you say, where on Ian's face does the smile line on the right side of his face fall? Does it fall at three o'clock? Does it fall, in that case, more like 525 or something? And by learning to make those very minute estimations of where lines fall, you begin to break the symbol set that resides inside all of our heads that tells us what's there, even though it's not what we see. That's how you learn to draw, with a hundred little stunts like that, and you begin to put them together, and you move underhand instead of stabbing at the paper like Lady Macbeth, as I did when I began, and something over time, over a year in this case, resembling a representation of the world begins to emerge under your hands. But the same thing is true of boxing. You know, what you're taught in boxing is not to unleash your belligerence, just as you're not taught in drawing to observe the world. You're taught a very routinized set of blows, of punches that you have to throw, you know, jab, jab, cross, slip, uppercut. Now, you've seen real boxers, professional boxers, throw that sequence a million times. Every time a boxer starts, they start with a jab. You never stop to think about it, at least I never had. But you learn that sequence, which is awkward again, a little counterintuitive, and you keep doing it over and over in front of a mirror with your coach, with another boxer, until it be slips inside you and you begin to do it without thinking about it. Uh, you get, reach that state, which some psychologists call the flow, and I think it was just a form of happiness. And so the continuity of that truth about how we learn things was one that I thought was worth um, emphasizing. Now, in a sense, everybody knows that already. Anybody who, who studies learning knows that, and anybody who learns knows that. It's equally true of learning the piano or the guitar or dancing. But I thought it was worth pointing out the universality of that truth, exactly because what's so interesting is all the different ways in which we instantiate that truth in our in our activity, and also because I think there's something profoundly cheering in about 
absorbing that truth. Because what it tells us is that some level of mastery is available to all of us. That if we fall in love with some activity, I love boxing. I am the world's most inept boxer, and I'm never going to have a prize fight unless they find another five foot five Jewish intellectual who's uh, on the opposite side ideologically. But I love it. I love it with a passion. And I, I will never be good at it in the external sense, but I am much better at it than I ever was before. And that feeling of getting better at it fuels and enriches and enlarges and empowers, to use uh, a cheap but effective word, it empowers everything else that I struggle to do in life. It enriches it, it recharges it, it re-energizes it. And I wanted to take that little gospel, that good news out to people and tell them that even if it's too late for us to become middleweight or lightweight champions, we can take enormous pleasure at any moment in life in learning to do new things. Yeah, so that's there's a lot in that answer that we can start to unpack a little bit. Uh, thank you for giving us not only the kind of the backstory about how these things happened organically, but then the observations that you've been able to make in terms of the common shape and the common purpose behind learning and, and pursuit of mastery. I, I love the fact that you say that pursuit of mastery enriches life. And I, I believe this is a similar premise from uh, Viktor Frankl's work, right? Is that you have to have some larger project, you know, something that is actually driving your learning and, and driving that pursuit, because ultimately that's how we derive meaning and purpose out of life. And then the other thing that, that struck me is you mentioned that this is somewhat known, you know, already, people already know this, that you need to break down mastery into small tasks, sub schemas. I love that phrasing. So if we already know this, and maybe it's already evident in higher ed, is there still a way that we can infuse this common shape and this common purpose behind learning into higher education? Like, is there a place where we can still do a better job of this pursuit of mastery as you've described it? Yes, absolutely. I believe that. I believe that passionately. As you may know, I come from an academic family. My mother was a leading linguist. My father was a dean of students at McGill University for many decades. I have four sisters, all uh, academics, a brother who's a kind of academic monkey, as is D. Phil, but he's a, a biographer rather than a, a professor. So I know, you know, I'm married to the mob, so to speak, or maybe I was the one guy who got out of the mob, <laughs> uh, out of the Corleone family and went legit. And, and so one of the truths, I think, and something I've, I've written about, is that uh, our educational system, even though we know this, even though if you talk to any intelligent able psychologist, they will tell you, yeah, that's how people, that's how we learn, right? Or any inspired teacher. And I think one of the things that makes, that I hope this book, makes this book entertaining, is that it's filled with irascible, impossible teachers, centaurs in the Greek, in the sense in Greek mythology, you know, the, the difficult mythological animal will, is the one you can learn from, not the amenable uh, mm -hmm. one. Uh, but I think we, we know it, but we don't always put it into practice. So we don't put it into practice at all. And as I've written and said, we tend to be achievement directed in education and as a society as a whole, as we want you to get the better grade. We want you to get to the next advanced class. Above all, in our benighted society, we want you to get into the elite university. Let's put all million quote marks around all that. But we do. 
we want you to, as a kid, as an ambitious kid, to go through a series of achievement gates, like a rat running through a maze. But my sense is, from my own experience, that what really matters in our education is accomplishment. And by accomplishment, I mean all of the things that are, in a sense, interdirected, that are, are things that compel us to learn, not because someone uh, is making us learn, but because we want to desperately. Now, we may often, in fact, almost invariably turn eventually to a teacher who can help us get better at those things. But the impulse is mysterious and inner. I, I've used the example when I was 12 years old without any evident musical talent at all. I locked myself in my room like a generation of 12-year-olds, I might add, hardly original, and learned Beatle chords with a big book of Beatles songs. And I strained to learn a C chord and a D chord and a G chord. Nobody taught me. I wanted to be a Beatle. I wanted to play that music. Now, as you may have noted, I am not a professional guitarist 50 plus years later. But that experience of having something extremely resistant and difficult that I, in some appropriate sense, mastered is the foundation on which I've been able to build my life and get good at things that I am good at, like writing. And I think everybody who has any kind of contact with happiness or meaning, to use Viktor Frankl's essential word, that's what we're trying to do, construct meaning. We're trying to make a living. We're trying to provide for our families. But if we have an inner purpose, it's to, it's to live meaningfully. Now, anyone who does that will have relate an experience of that kind. It may be so my wife's experience when she was the same age, instead of picking up a guitar, she wanted to learn to sew her own clothes. She loves fashion and she couldn't afford to go out and shop for things. So she sewed them for herself. Same process, right? All these weird little shapes that you have to cut the fabric into and laboriously with a sewing machine, you put them together into the dress you long to wear. She's not a seamstress and she's not a fashion designer. She's a filmmaker. But that was her foundational experience of accomplishment. And I think almost everybody has that. My son, who I write about in the book, Luke, became obsessed at exactly that same crucial adolescent age with card magic. And he wanted to leave school and go become a lounge magician, study with the lounge magicians in Las Vegas. It's one of the places where the book begins. There again, he's, he didn't become a lounge magician. He's a philosopher. He's getting his PhD in philosophy. But the, the hard, uh, resistant, rewarding art of card magic is the foundation on which everything else he's done rests. So I believe that accomplishment and pursuing accomplishment is a better model for education than uh, pursuing achievement. And in a certain sense, Ian, it doesn't matter what it is that you learn to do. I had a great teacher at McGill University where I went who sadly died just a couple months ago named Albert Bregman, great cognitive psychologist. And I was struggling as you can only do when you're 21 years old and you have to choose your major and it seems like the most important thing in the world. And I was struggling between psychology and art history. And uh, he said, cal very calmly, he said, you know what? He said, is this a difficult decision for you? And I said, yeah, really difficult. He said, then it's not important. He said, all difficult decisions are unimportant because if they're difficult, it means that there's a lot to be said on both sides. There's something rewarding about both and it doesn't matter which one you choose. Each one will be rewarding in a different way. He said, if you were struggling between art history and dentistry, he said, that wouldn't be a difficult decision for you. You'd know which one you'd want to do. And I always thought that was very profound advice because what he was saying was not only that psychology was interesting and art history is interesting, which is true, but also that you would learn how to learn by pursuing either one. You would expand your mind, build your learning skills, and you probably wouldn't end up either as a psychologist or as an art historian, but you would end up learning. You would end up knowing more. 
And I've always thought that that was profound. And I think it's, it, it's you know, that's the why we learn, right? Eventually, we find our way to our vocation. That's part of uh, the experience of life. But we find our way to our vocation, in my experience, in the experience of the world as I've seen it, much more frequently by pursuing the passion that we love in front of us, which eventually becomes the fuel that energizes the vocation that we have. And now we're going to take a quick break. Want more of the most important higher ed news, insights, and perspectives, but don't have time to look for it? Visit unincorporated.com to subscribe to our higher education news brief, where you'll get the top stories in higher ed delivered straight to your inbox every Monday. And now back to the discussion. I love this distinction you've made between accomplishment and achievements. I think that there's a lot there to highlight, footnote, and and dig into, especially when it comes to the way that we design our curriculum within class, the way we deliver our lessons, and the types of activities that we do in class versus asynchronously in our homes. But the the notion of pursuing accomplishment versus achievement, I think, is a is a really classy distinction and, and great advice. It's clear that you have your own overwhelming amount of intellectual curiosity, growth. It's clear you're a lifelong learner. I mean, look at all the new skills that you're that you're interested in pursuing. Is this a learned trait? Do you think that you've always had this lifelong learning compulsion or is or is this something that um, you know that, that that was innate or that you had to learn over time? It's a terrific question, Ian, and I, I'd, I'd have to reflect on it. I'm one of those people who was always ineducable in the sense that I never liked school. I always hated school, and I had to teach myself things for them to be really meaningful for, to me, like like learning guitar and then piano and so on. I was blessed, you know, like everybody. Nobody can truly sort out what's genetic and what's uh, environmental or nature or nurture. I was blessed to have a wonderful upbringing with five brothers and sisters, all of whom were curious, uh, mother and father, who had the the flaws that we all have as parents, I have with my own, but who had inestimable gifts, and above all, the gift of opening up the world to us on um, even terms, you know, going to museums not as a chore or to be lectured, but, but as a part of life, going to hear Shakespeare and Sheridan when I was little, teaching us that those things were sources of delight, not sources of instruction, but sources of fountains of pleasure, not of purpose. And I'm profoundly grateful to them. And I, I'm sure that my own taste for the next thing is fueled by their teaching. I will add that I think, Ian, and you know, it's funny because when I began this book, I never intended to become an apostle for late in life learning, which is a whole thing, right? But I am, and I'm, I'm not apologizing for having found in the course of presenting this book to the world that that was one of the one of the, the frequencies that it vibrated on, because I think it's mm-hmm. true. I think that uh, as we get older, if we're lucky enough to be healthy and to have the chance to do it, we grow enormously by doing the next new thing. And even though I love the thing I do, writing passionately, I like doing it more now than I did when I was 25. I like doing it more now than I was 55. I have no impediments to uh, pursuing my own vocation, and I know that it's the thing I do well. It's it's what I'm here to do, but I find 
that the other, the, the secondary passions are as important. You know, there's a, in, I, this isn't in the book, but it's something that came to my mind the other day. There's, um, I know I shouldn't talk about things that aren't in the book. That's, I apologize <laughs> to my publisher. That's not how you sell a book by talking <laughs> about things that aren't in the book. But in France, there's a saying, there's a phrase, you say, le violin d'Angre, which means literally the violin of Angre, Angre being the great neoclassical painter of the 19th century. And Angre loved to play the violin. He wasn't terribly good at it, he wasn't bad at it, but he was not remotely as good at the violin as he was at drawing and painting, in which he was matchless. But he was immensely proud of his violin. He insisted that it be at the museum that he bequeathed all his work to. Uh, he played it whenever he had the chance, and it became a proverbial expression, right? The secondary passion that fuels your primary passion is Angre's violin. There's even actually a restaurant in Paris called Le Violin d'Angre that was opened by a great pastry maker named Christian Constant, who also wanted to do, you know, cream sauces and savory dishes. So he, that's what he called it. And I think there's something very profound about that. And I know very few accomplished people, in in my sense, who don't have their own violin, who don't have a secondary passion that fuels their primary passion. Mine is music, guitar and piano and doing those things. I channel that somewhat in my vocation as a songwriter, but I don't write the music, I write the words because that's what I, I, I'm good at. But I think that's an incredibly rich thing. And I think that, you know, we tend to condescend to later in life learning, even if we're, if, even if we officially approve of it, right? I was at a play the other day, Ian, where it was sort of an expose that one of the characters in the play wasn't actually a tenured professor, but was doing, uh, you know, continuing learning, you know, was in that program. And the response was, oh, what a phony, right? And it infuriated me because that's exactly the person who is being, playing the most creative and carpentering role in, in helping people. As I say, we tend to condescend to people who are pursuing a new hobby, um, like it's a time filler. But I just think that somebody who's, you know, doing an older person who's doing macrame or yoga or batik or learning to write short stories or all of those things, they may never be uh, expert at it, but they will achieve a level of mastery at it. And it is the sense of the flow, the return of happiness. And what is happiness after all? It's simply our capacity to be absorbed in something outside ourselves, in a meaningful system outside ourselves. Think about all the moments you've genuinely been happy, including erotic moments, right? And it comes exactly from losing yourself in another, in, a, in something outside yourself. That's what happiness is for human beings. And you can re-access that kind of happiness by pursuing new kinds of mastery at any moment in your life. Yeah. So one of the, the big critiques on higher ed, or at least a lot of pressure on higher ed to show career outcomes, to show the, the return on investment, so we, we hover around this topic and this idea quite a bit on this show is, you know, how do you communicate the value of something that maybe doesn't have a direct return on investment or it appears, that return appears in a multitude of different ways. And you're, you're obviously an advocate for the importance of intellectual curiosity, lifelong learning. So how do you feel higher ed, a, a university can effectively communicate the value of fostering intellectual growth? I think about it all the time, because as I say, I come from a family of academics. I make a major part of my living by going from college to college, university to university, doing a convocation, doing a 
you know, I, I go, I went out to Stanford to speak up on behalf of the humanities to the STEM students to tell them there's real value in studying art history and English. I got, got those kinds of steady, opaque looks from, from the kids. But I'm, as I say, I make, <laughs> I spend a lot of time doing that. And, you know, we can make a, you know, a lot of points historically, the, the sciences usually to a surprising degree, get their inspiration, get their spark from the arts. That's not a fantasy or a, you know, Pollyanna-ish myth. It's true. You know, the story I always like to tell is people don't, you know, everybody's heard of Galileo, but you know, Galileo's father was a lute player and he was a, a, a theorist of, of um, tuning, of lute tunings. And Galileo's taste for the empirical and the practical for putting aside Aristotelian speculation in favor of uh, empirical observation came directly from his father's intense involvement with the specifics of lute playing and also with the idea that you could make the lute, you, there were better ways of lute tuning that weren't part of the inherited tradition. That's a s- small but I think significant story about you know the arts feed the sciences. We could replicate those stories endlessly. I wrote a book about Charles Darwin, who's one of my great intellectual heroes. And one of the points I was making was that it was Darwin's skills as a kind of natural novelist. Darwin loved novels. He was a close friend of George Eliot. And the reason that um, On the Origin of Species is such a matchlessly powerful book is because Darwin was such a matchlessly powerful writer. He knew how to organize his observations, not in an academic, uh, dry or obscure way, but as a as a popular book. You know, people forget that about Origin of Species is that there's no technical book by Darwin, and then a popular book by Darwin. The popular book is the technical book. It was published as what we would now call it a trade book. If Darwin hadn't been um, a lover of literature and a maker of, a, of literature, it, the history of, of evolutionary theory would be very, very different. So I believe as a matter of plain fact that there's, a ma- there's an implicit marriage of what we call the humanities of the arts and, and the sciences. But beyond that, we come back to exactly Viktor Frankl's question, which is a question of meaning. How do you want to live your life? You know, there's a beautiful quote from Mary Oliver, the poet, which I use in the book. You know, we only have so many heartbeats. And how do you want to expand your precious and vital heartbeats? It's up to you. I don't want to put on airs, Ian. I really don't. I understand that I sit in a position of good fortune. I I like to think, to some degree, earn good fortune because I've worked very hard. But that you and I sit and we can contemplate, well, what's the other thing we want to do? And we want to go out and do this. And people who have the immediate goad of, of need or necessity experience, I have the immediate goad of need or necessity, but I understand people experience it differently. And I understand that, you know, what's driving all those STEM kids is not a Philistine indifference to the arts most often, but instead a sense that they absorb from their parents, they absorb from the society that if they're going to make a lot of money, and you unfortunately have to make a lot of money, so to speak, in our society, to live a recognizably ordinary life, a middle-class life is an expensive life now. There was a time when when my parents were coming of age, when being a university professor allowed you to live a fine middle-class, upper-middle-class life. It's my son, who's planning to become a university professor, doesn't have anything like that assurance. I, that's just a fact about the way the world has changed in the past 50 years. And it's a bad way that it's changed. Not that university professors should be overpaid, but someone who chooses the life of the mind should have a reasonable expectation to have a, an ordinary life. I'm not talking about 
hugely elevated life, but not having to, in effect, go into a monastery and hope that your spouse becomes a lawyer to to a feature. That's a very bad feature of our increasingly inequitable society. Um, And so I understand what motivates uh, particularly second-generation immigrants and so on to to do that. But you'll be leading, leading an impoverished life. You'll be leading an impoverished life. And I haven't known anyone in my own personal experience who doesn't testify to that, who doesn't feel that if they narrowly pursue only sciences, what economics, whatever, that they don't feel that their life is unduly parched. And that's a value judgment, but it's not a value judgment I'm afraid to make. That's, uh, we want to promote, that's what a university should do. A university is not a trade school. It's a place that promotes values. And the most important value it can promote is the open pursuit and pluralistic pursuit of meaning. Yeah. And I think you you struck a chord when you said that the thing that is most at risk is leading an impoverished life if you don't pursue this intellectual growth and pursue this meaning. But let's turn our, our focus a little bit to this idea of inspiring others. And you you share this the story of Galileo's father and how he was inspired through uh, his father's love of music. How might a professor or an educator take a story such as that and kind of embody that within the classroom? How do we help inspire others to build good habits around lifelong learning or build a sense of, you know, path or purpose to to what they're most passionate about? Do Do you think Galileo's father, another way of asking this question, do you think Galileo's father was intentionally inspiring him? Or do you think it just sort of happened organically and by happenstance? And if so, is there anything to model within the classroom for inspiring students? Sure. I, I, I don't, I suspect it wasn't by, you know, self-conscious intention, but it wasn't by happenstance. It was by practice. I mean, that's how we learn things is through practice. I have one of my many brilliant sisters is my sister, Allison, very well-known psychologist. And she said once, if we taught kids to play softball the way we teach them to do science, they would hate softball as much as they hate science. Meaning that if we, if we sat them down in a classroom and said, in the game of softball is played by swinging a bat at a, at a thrown pitch, you can't play it yet, right? And you, but the greatest softball players include here. Um, there's a debate among softball players about whether you should cut upwards or have a flat and level swing. You taught it to them that way, they'd be as bored as they are too often by science classes. We teach them by putting them, sending them out in a softball field where they pick up skills through practice. We have coaches. We hope that they're inspired coaches, but that's how we learn softball. And that's also the way, the, the, the healthiest way to learn science or learn art history or anything else. That doesn't make it easy. I mean, it, if anything, it raises the degree of difficulty. And as I said, you know, this book is very much a study in irascible teachers. And if learning has something in common, the, the, the universal pursuit of uh, breaking it down and building it up, uh, teachers, great teachers, all I think have something in common, which is that they have an incredibly high standard that they won't compromise on, but they have infinitely great patience in assisting you and supporting you if you're prepared to try and reach that standard. Uh, I was blessed to have in my own life many wonderful teachers and a single great teacher to whom this book is dedicated. Kirk Varnado, the um, art historian who passed away tragically 
uh, Young 20 years ago this year, one of the reasons I wanted to dedicate the book to him this year. And I wrote a, an essay about him in my book, Through the Children's Gate, called Last of the Metrozoids. And it was about how he went about coaching kids football and teaching art history in remarkably similar ways. In fact, in exactly the same way, breaking it down into manageable pieces and then building it up. But the motive that he always had was not to instill in you his system, but as I wrote once, not to a guru gives you his system, a teacher gives you yourself. That was his goal always, was to liberate you to find out what it is that you could do as an art historian, as a poor, as a football player, that that's what a great teacher does. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, I think that that's vital to, to the, to the, to the pursuit of it. I don't mean to sound impractical, Ian. I make my living by writing and I work extremely hard. I write six hours a day, seven days a week. Industry is everything and we should never belittle uh, industry. But there's industry. What Kirk Varnado taught me is that industry is joy. If you're doing something that's meaningful to you, then working on it for six hours isn't enough time in the day to be doing it. We live in a society in which too few people get to do the thing that they passionately love, and too many people are alienated from their work. And it's one of the one of the the damning and difficult things about a modernity. But those of us who have the opportunity to be doing meaningful work should be spreading the gospel of meaningful work, that that's what counts ultimately. And uh, it's something I think that every um, psychologist, every study will tell you that what counts finally in life what is our access to the experience of happiness, which exists in our capacity to become absorbed in something outside ourselves. And I don't, and anytime people, even, you know, in social psychology, ask people what when they look back on life, what made them happy? It isn't the things they owned and it isn't the money that they earned. It was the vital experiences that they had. That's not a fantasy. That's a fact. I think you make an, another great distinction there when you mention the differences between a teacher and a guru, a teacher being someone who helps the other person find themselves. It can be a, a real... Um, transformative experience when you have a teacher like that, that can bring out the, not only the best in you, but help you find your way. Any, any advice or, you know, through your research and your own experiences, any notes on how a teacher might help their students find themselves? You know, I think the key thing in a great teacher, right, is that, uh, is to be limitlessly encouraging and not at all delusional. I have a wonderful boxing teacher named Joey Contrada who I've been studying with, a boxing, a Muay Thai, you know, what we call stupidly kickboxing champion. Uh, hmm. And he took me on in my 60s as a, as a student. And Joey is the most encouraging of teachers, the most demanding, constantly saying, I need you to get back your guard back up. I need you to, to balance. I need you to open up your cross. But he never participates in the delusion that I'm ever going to be a good boxer, right? That's not what we're trying for but he always makes me feel I'm a better boxer this week than I was a week ago and much better than I was six months ago and has given me uh, given me a part of myself that I wouldn't have known was there. That is someone who is actually capable of performing in a coordinated and choreographed way, acting out the ballet of belligerence that is boxing. And that's enriches the way I stand up straight in the world and the way I, I feel when I walk down the street. That's what a great teacher does, gives us ourselves in that very specific and, and practical sense. Great singing teachers do the same thing. We all may never be 
singers, but feeling confident in your own voice in every sense is, is, is vital. Good writing teachers. I am not a good writing teacher because I'm too impatient when it comes to my own art form. But good writing teachers do that too. They make the students search for his or her voice. And though, again, your voice, when you discover it, may never be Alice Munro's voice. It may never be that caliber. It is your voice. And there's something that will be a meaningful place for you in the world of words if you pursue it uh, adequately. That, that I know from endless experience of encouraging people to make the commitment. So, I, you know, I really do believe that we can all we can all have that experience. And I don't, as I say, it's not something that I think is delusional, right? We can't all be masters of things. You know, we can't. I used to have a friend, famous uh, director, who said, if I were running a school, the first thing I'd do was take the kids to a room of Rembrandts at the Metropolitan Museum and tell them, you will never do anything this good in your life. And he meant it not as discouragement, but exactly as saying, value, you know, cherish the highest possible standard that you can exactly because it gives your life meaning to know that greatness is possible and we're all going to pursue it. And we, we may not get there. You, you know, you don't, you want someone who's going to tell you not that you're on top of Everest when you're not, but that scaling Everest is a worthwhile activity. Scaling Everest may not be a worthwhile activity at this point in history, but <laughs> metaphorically scaling Everest is. So, you know, I, I, I recognize as we talk in, you know, many of the truths that I have to tell you are, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That's one of the most powerful sentences in English, because that was what Franklin and Adams were saying. These things are self-evident. We shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't have to argue about them. And similarly, the things I'm saying ought to be self-evident. We don't have to, to, to argue about them. What we have to do is instantiate them in our instruction. That's all really well said. Do you see part of the mystery of mastery, this balance between skills and the development of skills and the intellectual curiosity or the passion to learn more about these skills, right? Is, is it purely skills-based or is there this balance of both intellectual curiosity about the, the performance or the activity as well as focusing on the skill de- skills development? Yeah, obviously, the two things are, are you know, deeply entangled and, and interlocked. I, I do think that there are signs, and as I say, I don't set myself up for a moment as, a, as an expert on the psychology of education. I am a quixotic essayist who mm-hmm. pursues learning. But so many people who have come to hear me speak in the, the time I've been out with this book, and I am truly the Willie Loman of American literature. I've been in 25 cities with my little satchel pushing my books. So many people who've come to hear me speak come up and say that they are engaged in mastery learning, skills learning, right? Trying to redo curriculums for kids, especially, um, mm-hmm. so that they're focused on mastering things rather than rote learning to the test. I recognize that's very difficult. I recognize, Ian, that if I were a better person than I am, I'd shut my mouth and go teach uh, elementary school in a, in an underprivileged uh, environment. And I recognize the people who have made that saintly decision to go teach underprivileged kids in, in an environment have a much higher and steeper path than the one I'm describing. But I don't think it's a different path. I don't think it's a different path. I think it's the same path of imbuing in kids a love of confidence in their own capacity for accomplishment, their own capacity for mastery. Um, every teacher I've spoken to nods enthusiastically at that thought, and they all regard 
I'm talking now about elementary school teachers for the most part, and they all regard with great regret the way in which it, it, we have to, if you're in a public school, you have to teach to the test, or even in the, I hate the word privileged and never use it, but even in the highly fortunate progressive and, and independent schools that, that I've known, they hate the way in which the kids are being funneled towards college. I remember one of uh, the smartest uh, teachers my kids had saying, I just wish I could shake these parents and tell them there is no bad outcome for any of these kids. There is no bad outcome for any of these kids. Forget Ivy League schools. Forget all that. There are one of the, as you know, I'm sure, and it's one of the things that those of us who grew up inside the university know, there's such an abundance of gifted PhDs in the world now, an overabundance in some ways. One of the themes of the book is that mastery in modern times is much more widely disseminated, much more widely available than we quite know. Um, it's a digression, but I tell the story of the, the great chess playing automaton that worked exactly on that principle. Everyone thought you could never find a genius chess player to put inside this machine. And the guy who invented it, the magician who invented it in the 18th century, said, yeah, there are genius chess players in every chess cafe in Europe who need work. And in the same way, there are genius PhDs coming out of every university now, and some of them work at Yale, and some of them work at North Dakota State, and they're about equal in terms of energy and, and intelligence. So it doesn't matter where you send your kid to college. They'll be exposed. They only need one great teacher. They need one great teacher, and they're just as likely to get it at some not, school without a spectacular uh, heritage as they are at some school that does. So, you know, all, all those teachers I admired that said, if only we could shake the parents out of this focus on it and get them thinking about having their kids live fulfilling lives. It's so true too. When I think back and reflect on my educational experience, both, um, you know, going through high school and then into uh, post-grad work even, there's always that one great teacher you know the the one transformative person that really stands out and was really that that gateway uh, to the next path. I was blessed to have one great teacher, Kirk Varnado, many wonderful teachers, one great one in in Varnado. Mm -hmm. But my dad, you know, was came from a simple background. Nobody in his uh, family had ever graduated high school, much less gone to college. And he had a college advisor who said to him, "You know, you're a smart kid. You should think of of going to uh, university." And in those days, um, he recommended Williams, which was out of his experience. But those days, University of Pennsylvania, he was a Philadelphia kid, was available. You know, you, you know it, was, it was the good local school. If you were a smart high school kid, you could go and you could work your way through it. You know, and that's what my dad did. My mom, who was much smarter, got a, a fellowship to Penn from similarly uh, undereducated, underprivileged immigrant background. But in both cases, there was one great teacher, a math teacher or a guidance counselor who said, you're capable of doing this, right? And those are the people who are heroic and still we ought to encourage, obviously. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tee up what I think is maybe one of the more complex or difficult questions here. But there is an article that you wrote, The Information and How the Internet Gets Inside Us. You know this one? I remember it, yes. Yeah. So you examine the impact of the digital age and how like, our attention spans continue to get smaller and smaller. So my question is, based on, on that experience and the research that you, you brought to that article, how might a university strike a balance between, you know, not only speaking the language of young people, but also catering to short attention spans while still preserving that deep, thoughtful learning experience that is so akin to, uh, to the university experience? 
Well, it's funny, you know, as a as a, an essayist over 40 years, you know, there's some things people come up to me and say, you know, um, I love that piece you did about the ghost moths in Sweden. And I'm saying, oh, I'm so glad. Like, what? <laughs> when did I write about the ghost moths in Sweden? And I did. But that piece, the one you mentioned, information is one that's still like a satellite is still orbiting the earth. And I'm conscious that people read it. And I, it's strange how that happens. One the, the equally uh, pieces I worked equally hard on vanish. But I was trying to make a, a, a case there that we're at any moment in history, uh, I said that there are three schools of thought. There are the um, never betters, the ever wasers, and the um, uh, the negative, I forget what I call them. But anyway, the point was that at any moment in the history of technology, there's somebody who's gonna tell you uh, the toaster will end breakfast for good and there will never be a good breakfast again because of the electric toaster. Someone else will tell you that breakfast will never be as delicious because of the electric toaster and someone else will tell you there's no difference between the electric toaster and toasting your bread over an open fire. It's the same thing, only by slightly different means. And that's always been true about the history of technology. Tele- I grew up with television, right? And it's very funny, as I suspect you did too, now because television is a, is a benevolent force in the world now, right? You know, it's <laughs> true that you say to your kid, please get off your goddamn computer and come watch television <laughs> for the whole family. Television, you know, we watch long form series from Sweden and Denmark and we television is the family hearth and it's the laptop and the phone above all that are the atomizing features. But 50 years ago, everybody said television was fragmenting our consciousness and making it impossible for us to have a real sense of community or solidarity. And strange as it is to think, people were saying the same thing about books. Uh, when during the printing revolution, right, that that it was something unnatural about being uh, left alone with a printed book. That uh, interesting social concern. Anne Blair said the same thing about indexes. You know, the index to a book was regarded as a wildly radical, mm-hmm. fragmenting thing because instead of experience experiencing the totality of the book, you went to the index and broke it down these pieces, and that that was terrible. So we should all try and resist the melodrama of thinking that there's been some fundamental fracturing of our consciousness by our phones, right? At the same time, uh, and you knew there was an at the same time coming here, we all <laughs> recognize that the digital technology has changed things more than any other force in our lives. Our, our art is in the 1980s and now, and popular art is very similar, but the way we experience it is, is totally unlike. You know, some things are certainly true, even though, even if you're an, an ever-wasser, as I tend to be, you know, believe that there's far more continuity and that we all overreact to technological change. Expertise has largely vanished in education, right? If you're trying to teach uh, the difference between a eulogy and an elegy, the kids in the back of the class are already checking it. And I, you know, I have this experience with my daughter, who's 22, who's one of the heroines of this book. We learned to dance together. When I'm I'm speculating on something and she's on the other side of the table at the restaurant, I mean she's actually checking for the fact. And she's like, no, no, Dad, that happened in 1922. Fitzgerald published Gatsby in 24, but Hemingway thought, and you know that. So expertise now is kind of meaningless because we all have ultimate expertise in our pockets. That's not going to be a meaningful part of education anymore. Somebody who imparts information that's unique that nobody else has. Uh, but inspiration isn't. And when people say, you know, that our, our uh, I'm regurgitating the, you know, some of the thoughts from that piece, which I still think are relevant, 
when people say that our kids have, uh, you know, fractured attention spans, the thing I can't get over is they read these 800, 900 page fantasy novels, which I can barely get through because I find them so, you know, we, we were joking at the beginning, right, about Tolkien and, and even Star, but Tolkien started a revolution in consciousness every bit as big as Steve Jobs did, right? Because now every kid absorbs these alternative worlds, Dune and, and Aragon and, you know, a million others. Uh, some of them fantastic, some of them quite tedious, and they have no difficulty. Harry Potter above all, and why didn't that come to my lips immediately? Um, any kid who can get through Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone does not have a fractured consciousness. That's a demanding book to, to focus on. So I think that's overdrawn as a concern. As I said, things change. Expertise now is not as valuable as it once was. That's not where you're going to make a, get a lot of juice in education. We all know that English as a, as a field is in decline. And my dad was an English professor, so it pains me. And I'm a reader and I write some form of English literature. So that pains me. But I don't think it's because books are less interesting or print is less interesting. After all, the internet, more than anything else, is a reading medium. I mean, the ultimate irony of our age is that uh, my kids communicate everything through sentences, through type, that is through texting, right? And to get them to make a phone call is almost impossible. Uh, you know, it's the weirdest thing, right? If you could imagine, it would make more sense the other way around, that there were, there was texting was the primary, the the old technology, and then someone invented a phone call. But it doesn't work that way at all. You can't get them to make a phone call. They rely on reading. So when people say reading is dead in the age of the vision, it's not dead. That's all they do is read and write. Now, they may not read and write at a, a Dante-like level, but they're reading and writing. And I think that that's part of the, of, of the truth of it. So in that sense, I'm not at all pessimistic. I think that the general truth about technology is that it, it, on the whole, it tends to be steady state and that our fears are always the same, right? And every generation we say, whatever the new technology is, is fracturing our kids' consciousness. And whatever the popular entertainment is that is produced by the new technology is ruining their morals. And that can be true about comic books and juvenile delinquency in the 1950s. And it's true about video games and and psychopathic violence in the 20 in the 2020s. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll probably add AI to that list as well. I did I just did two pieces recently about AI cuz like everybody, I'm fascinated by one about literary written AI and one about visual AI. I found the visual AI, they're both on the in the no, the 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 one about written AI is I did for the BBC, but the one about visual AI is um, for the New Yorker and I found it really interesting, you know, because truth is we don't want we don't need pictures to make points and be original ai is not good at making points and being original it's excellent at recreating the atmospherics of something and that's uh, more interesting i think in visual arts than it is in uh, in uh, in yeah. literature or in simple literature like test taking Re recreating the atmosphere of an original idea i like that phrase that's really nice i did a, a mid journey visual ai prompt that rendered what the tally man would look like tallying bananas <laughs> with his oh, in the clipboard song, in the, and everything. In the song. Uh, Mr. Yeah. Tally Man, Tally Me Banana. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have a whole series of, uh, of short Instagram posts with the Tally Man tallying bananas.
Oh, I must look. I must but, look uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of fun. Um, so resist the melodrama. I like that that note. You also uh, point out the irony of technology leading to more reading and writing. <laughs> That's a really good uh, a key idea there. And then I don't know if this was a direct quote that I heard or not, but you gave me this, um, this beautiful idea. Inspiration doesn't have an attention span. So when the learner is truly inspired, attention span is like a time warp, you know, and maybe that's that flow state that we, that we covet so much, but inspiration doesn't have an attention span. I love that. Uh, yeah, I think that, yeah. And, and it's exactly the point of, of this book is that once you're into it, you expand, you know, expand endlessly. And, and again, the other point, you know, I, I use the metaphor in the book of um, the hummingbird and the elephant, which was, you know, alternative title for this book, uh, because, you know, that old myth that hummingbirds and elephants have the same number of heartbeats in a lifetime. The hummingbird has hers, a billion heartbeats in a um, hundred days and the elephant in a hundred years. Turns out to be true, roughly speaking, you know, in grosso modo, there's a talking about, you know, the great things that only universities can do at North Carolina State University. There's a heartbeat program where they count heartbeats of mammals and birds um, and the point I use it for, you know, metaphorically, poetically, is that the the experience of the hummingbird and the elephant are remarkably similar. They go through the same transformations in life. Hummingbird doesn't know in some sense that her life is shorter than the, the elephants. And in the same way, as we experience our own passionate pursuit of the accomplishment, of mastery, of absorption, uh, it fills our inner selves as the hummingbird heart, hummingbird's heartbeats fill herself. And so in a very real sense, it doesn't matter how we're judged in the external world of the elephant, unless we want the elephant elephant approval, and it can fill us. I, I, I'm aware that that can sound like a, a myth, if only it were so, but I, I, if this book has a point, is that it can be so even in the life of a, of a dullard like myself. Mm, that's great. So we have time, I think, for for one more key idea. I, I've always thought in my professional career, and you know, thinking about the education space as well, that there is a a high level of performative. There's there's a performative aspect to your career. There's a performative aspect to when you take the quote unquote stage as a as a student. You know, first year student at your college program. There's a performative aspect of every time you enter that Zoom room or enter that in-class uh, moment with your students as, a, as an educator, right? There's this moment, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you, you s- reference this moment of performance and how the moment of performance is everything and how we need to be able to focus and perform at our best when it matters most. So can you just tell us more about this idea of performance and how it relates to learning? The two senses in which I think it's vital, right? One is, is that all our interactions are performative. We're, we're acting ourselves in some way. I had a wonderful driving teacher named Arturo Leon, and what he was teaching me to do was to perform for the driving inspector, for the woman who was going to be in the car with me watching me drive. And I had to learn to perform for her benefit. And it was one way of, of learning to drive. And he had a wonderful expression. He said, become the noodle, Adam, become the noodle. He meant you want to be at ease, you want to be upright and paying attention, but you want to communicate your ease to the driving inspector, that'll impress her much more than whether you can parallel park or not. You look at home in the car. So there's a powerful element of performance in all the mastery that we uh, that we undertake. And I think, uh, I think that's very true. 
at the same time, you know, there's a there's a, uh, another element of it, which is that the we perform for others, right? When you're mm-hmm. you're inevitably, even if your audience is tiny, you're engaged with an audience. Magicians don't do magic with their fingers; they do it with their minds. They do it mm-hmm. by empathetic anticipation of what the audience expects, and then turning their way against it. When you're learning to box, right? Even if you're not actually yet at the stage of sparring with a partner, you're taught to think always about what the other boxer is doing. Your imaginary opponent is the most important person you'll ever meet because everything you do is in relation to what he might do at that moment. So that imaginary opponent is essential. Same thing is true about about dancing, right? You're, You're constantly learning in this case, not an imaginary opponent, but the actual other, in this case, my own wonderful daughter who is, you know, in your arms and you're trying, you're, you're moving together. There's no, there's no, there's solitary dancing, but if you're learning ballroom dancing, what you're learning is to have a conversation uh, with another person. Uh, And the conversations we have through uh, actions, dancing with my daughter is a much richer conversation than talking to my daughter, who's a great talker, but that we do all the time. This was something mm-hmm. more. Um, so I think that the performative aspect of mastery, not just in the show-off sense, so I can show you I can do it well, but in the much more internalized sense that we can't learn anything in isolation. We don't, you know, uh, one of the, the, the simpler aphorisms in the book that I think is true is that everything we do involves everything we are. You don't learn to bake in isolation, you learn to bake with your mother and your relationship with your mother, your father, whomever, is what's at stake there. And, uh, you know, people who are sadly on the spectrum tend to focus on the task. And that's why we say that they're on the spectrum, because they don't understand that the actual task encompasses, involves, and engages other minds. I tell the story in the book of a, of a wonderful audio engineer who I stared, shared a stage with once for The Moth, who was a brilliant audio engineer, but was someplace on the spectrum and didn't understand that music had emotional content. And as he improved, got better, made more synaptic connections, both by artificial means and and by, uh, so to speak, natural ones, um, he became aware of the emotional power of music and he had to stop doing engineering because it was so overwhelming for him. That's what music is. It's about the emotional power of its connectivity. It's not about the mathematical precision of its uh, of its engineering so yes in all of those ways not just i i perform for your benefit though uh, you perform the role of the teacher as you perform anything else and it's a crucial part of it the great teachers we admire most are great performers in that sense whether it's richard Feynman or kirk varnado or or carl sagan and that's vital to her elaine pagels um and that's vital to it uh and i think in all those ways performing mastery is is a vital part of achieving it or i should say accomplishing it yeah wonderful adam thank you so much what a what a great collection of ideas and you know really really stimulating discussion i encourage everyone that's listening or watching go out pick up a copy of the real work on the mystery of mastery where you're going to hear you know a lot of these key ideas echoed again as well as uh, others any final thoughts or kind of parting words you want to leave us with, Adam? The parting words, is very interesting, right? You write a book and then the book writes you. I wrote this book out of my passions and my experience. It's essentially, I saw it as a comedy, a series of comic essays. And yeah, I've been out sharing the book with people and they're teaching me what the book contains. 
And that's a, it's in some ways a humbling experience. As I said, I didn't set out to become an apostle of later in life learning, but I'm proud that's one of the ways that the book is being, being read and understood. And I think that the degree to which um, all of us, when we take those leaps, I tell the story in the book of uh, catching the bullet quickly. My son went to work as part of his magic uh, obsession with uh, David Blaine, the great mm-hmm. magician, stuntman, performer of every kind. Yeah. And David was working on the bullet catch. That's the thing where you literally catch a bullet in your mouth. Someone fires a rifle, you have a titanium cup in your mouth, and you catch the bullet. Usually it's done as a gaffe. It's a trick. It doesn't actually happen. But back in the day in vaudeville, they did it, really, and a lot of magicians got killed. And David wanted to do it correctly. And so Luca came home and I said, well, how's David going to do it? And, da- and Luke said, well, it's a very strong cup, and it's a small caliber bullet, and it's a laser-guided rifle. And I said, oh, so there's no trick to the bullet catch? And Luke said, oh, yes, Dad, there's a trick to the bullet catch. And I said, well, Luke, what's the trick to the bullet catch? And he said, Dad, the trick <laughs> to the bullet catch is catching the bullet. And I thought that was the most profound piece of wisdom I knew. The trick to the bullet catch is catching the bullet. The trick to yeah. everything we do is that moment when we finally face an audience, reality, rolling the stone up the hill, publishing the book, and dealing with all of the surprising uh, reactions that that ensue, and you hope that the bullet ends up safe in the steel cup in your mouth. Yeah, that's great. The trick to pursuing mastery is to pursue mastery. Exactly. Yeah, thank you again for your time, Adam. It's been a, a just an honor and a pleasure to have you on today, and I look forward to reading more of your thought pieces as they come out. I completely enjoyed it, Ian. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. For more higher ed specific resources, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please visit unincorporated.com. Unincorporated.com.